Welcome once again to the Risk Experience Podcast. In the last few episodes of the podcast, we discussed the impact of artificial intelligence and disruptive technologies on post-COVID-19 world economy. Today, the podcast features one of the leading AI companies driving this change and ushering us into a new world of possibilities using AI. In this episode, I discuss with an executive from one of the leading AI services providers that serve predominantly Fortune 500 companies to help solve real-world problems. We delve into their business model, strategies, adoption rate of AI among Fortune 500 companies, and many interesting topics. I'm glad to have with me today Ras Rans, who is a co-founder of Prolego, a leading AI services provider. Welcome to the Risk Experience Podcast, Ras. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Thank you very much for joining. So let's begin by learning a bit about you. Can you share with us what your professional background is, as well as your role at Prolego? Absolutely. So for about the last 20 years or so, both as a practitioner and as a consultant, I've primarily worked in the corporate innovation space, helping large Fortune 500 companies stand up innovation practices and also managing different aspects of those practices. So I've worked with companies like Pfizer and Fidelity and Lowe's and a bunch of others um, to really help bring innovation practices to their different enterprises. And then recently, about three years ago, I stepped off the innovation train and migrated my way towards AI. And the reason I did that is innovation to me had become kind of like Groundhog's Day. It was just the same story over and over again. Right. And I found that a lot of my corporate clients, they weren't truly doing a lot of innovation work. It was just a lot of kind of lip service uh, to innovation. And I really wanted to build something I felt was um, really going to change the world. And um, that's when my paths crossed with my business partner, Kevin, and I'm sure we'll get into that story later and, and stood up Prolego, which is an AI uh, consultancy. Right. That is impressive. So what is Prolego and how did it all start? Yeah. So Kevin and I, uh, when we started the company, had both been around the block in terms of starting companies before in the past. And so we spent about four and a half minutes coming up with a company name. And so Prolego is uh, Greek for prediction. And um, we didn't want to spend any more time than that thinking of a company name. And so we chose that one and ran with it. So our genesis took place three years ago. Um, My business partner, Kevin DeWalt, had just shut down his last AI product company. And I was in the midst of starting a services company that offered data scientist services to startups. And it just so happened Kevin was familiar with one of my early clients and participated in some of our early engagement meetings and approached me after the engagement was done to ask my thoughts on uh, on AI and whether or not there was an opportunity to build an AI services company together. And my first reaction, my first question to him was, what's AI? Right. And, you know, from there, we kind of had this meeting of the minds where um, as we explored the future and asked ourselves the question, you know, what were the implications of this evolution towards an AI-driven future where data is the new oil? We said to ourselves that these big Fortune 500 companies would have to become adept at developing an AI capability in-house, meaning that they weren't dependent on external product companies because the data was just too valuable and the use cases were too niche for them to fully leverage in a competitive fashion the latest advances in artificial intelligence. Right. And so at the time, we weren't sure for three months or three years ahead of the market. We just knew we were early, but we knew that the market would need these services eventually. And so we decided to start ProLego and... um, see how we could begin developing and deploying AI services to large Fortune 500 companies. Right. So I believe the timing was good, as you said. 
In recent times, you've seen a lot of AI companies spring up as the adoption rate of AI in business also increases. So their timing couldn't have been more right. Yeah, so far, so good. It's been a really remarkable journey. Right, right. So what are the opportunities that exist to serve as an incentive for businesses to adopt AI? Sure. So I think first and foremost, there's an opportunity to create the conversation. Right. I find that when you approach most organizations, uh, let's use the Fortune 500, for example, once you get beyond like the Fortune 50, Fortune 100, the use of AI in their everyday businesses is very um, low. And I find that for a lot of AI, AI companies of both the product and services categories, there's an opportunity to create a conversation. Right. Um, the, the analogy I often use with people is like with where we are to artificial, I don't know how old you are, Frank. Um, are you old enough to remember what life was like before the internet came out? Um, I don't think so. I was probably too young to appreciate the difference between the two time periods. My experience has been mostly centered around everything that happened after the internet was open to the public. Okay. All right. So I am. And I, I often ask myself, what was it like for those people who first had to go sell internet services to the Fortune 500 back in 1994 or five, for example? There was no like head of internet at that time. Um, these organizations had maybe read about it in the magazines, gone to conferences that were mentioned, but there was little understanding of the strategic value that the internet could have on their businesses. In fact, it wouldn't be for like, you know, six, 10 years after that time before full organizations fully realized that this was going to have a massive disruptive um, impact on their core businesses. Right. That's where we are today with artificial intelligence. So anytime you raise your flag and call yourself an AI company, you have to take into account where the market's at. And in that, you'll see a, a host of opportunities that you can take advantage of. But I think first amongst those is being able to um, set the parameters of the conversation and demonstrate to your prospect, to the client, um, what is possible. And in a lot of cases, it'll be the first time that they've ever seen it. Right. So in that regard, what has been the contribution of Prolego in helping businesses adapt AI and how that has helped them grow? Yeah. So I would tell you that nearly all of our clients are what I would call AI pioneers. Right. Um, an AI pioneer is the executive or team that's tasked with trying to figure out how to bring AI into the enterprise and deploy it at scale. And Sometimes these are enterprising executives at the senior level who kind of, for whatever reason, got tasked with this assignment. Other times it's an outgrowth of some data science team or group that's been given this responsibility. Um, but our role is to kind of help them close any gaps that might exist to them being able to um, develop and deploy models at scale that help them better operate their business. And so a lot of our projects typically begin with like a strategy engagement where a client either is coming to us with a very specific use case that they need us to validate and tell them what they need to do in order to get that model into production, or they're coming to us with a blank slate and saying, look, we just need to figure out how we can begin to apply the known AI tech that's already proven itself across our businesses. And what are the infrastructure changes we need to make that happen? So um, those are kind of like the two core areas in which we assist our clients. And then there's a third bucket where uh, clients will come to us for some advanced research support where we're developing research and models that haven't even been dreamed up yet for very specific use cases. 
Right. So what types of businesses do you engage with or provide services to? Yeah. So when we first began this journey, um, you know, when you're a startup, you're just hungry for any dollar you can get. And so we took a broad-based approach to um, identifying where in the marketplace existed these AI pioneers. Um, those were the people we wanted to sell to. Those were the people we wanted to talk to. But over the years, we've kind of refined um, the type of clientele that we support. So while we still have an open doors policy to any business that wants to engage with us, for some reason, insurance and financial services found us. Right. And we've spent a lot of time and a lot of hours asking ourselves, why is it that this industry has kind of gravitated towards our services? And we think there's a host of reasons for that. You, you know, we haven't isolated a single reason why, but things like, you know, a lot of times insurance hasn't had a strong motivation to substantially alter their business practices. But I think now for the first time, there are legitimate competitors on the horizon upstarts who could take away significant portions of their business by leveraging technologies like AI. And these large established incumbents need to match capability to capability so that they can maintain their market position. Right. Number two, I think that these organizations just have so much data, both structured and unstructured, that hasn't been fully leveraged. I mean, they're almost more valuable in some cases as data companies than they are as, say, insurance companies. Right. And uh, and they've just not had the infrastructure or the personnel or the know-how really to kind of fully leverage that data um, and what it can do for their business. And I think those are the two main drivers why we've seen more and more insurance and financial services companies come to us for um, services. Right. Would you say your marketing strategy is also a contributing factor to ensuring that a lot of insurance and financial services companies gravitate towards Proligo? Most definitely. Um, you know, the awareness of our organization and services came as a result of you know the outbound marketing efforts that we've invested in. Right. Um, but it just coincided with these larger macro forces that made it uh, made it where there was. Um, and awareness within those organizations that they needed to engage with car companies like ours. I see. So for the benefit of other startups out there, can you share with us how you were able to secure some of your early engagements and how you were able to navigate your way around the C-suite of some of these Fortune 500 companies? Absolutely. So again, going back to the analogy of it being 1994 and trying to sell the internet, well, it's 2000 you know, in our case, it was 2017, 2018, trying to sell AI to big companies. And um, and it was impossible to know who to go to in these companies to begin the, the dialogue around what we could do to help them. Again, there was no, you would think maybe it's the CTO's office, maybe it's the CIO's office, maybe they have a chief data officer, um, or maybe you go through innovation, maybe the chief innovation officer. Right. And there were too many unanswered questions to begin a traditional marketing approach. And so in our case, what we decided to do was we went out and scheduled like 20, 30 interviews with different executives just to understand what they were doing around AI. And the output of those interviews became our first book, which was titled AI for Business Leaders. Right. And it was an ebook that we wrote in two weeks. And we put it out on LinkedIn and said, hey, if you'd like a copy of this book, send me a connection request or like and respond to this post. And we were overwhelmed by interest in that first ebook. And it wasn't just a bunch of randoms from different countries who contacted us. It was a who's who of, of leaders of American businesses that just kind of blew us away and made us ask ourselves, 
why are these people paying attention to a two-man shop, you know, with no history when they have access to like the biggest and best consulting firms in the world? Right. And that's when I knew or we knew that they were hungry for perspective and insights into this topic that they weren't getting from any of the other traditional sources. And so that led us to a lot of conversations with these individuals. And from there, we could begin to triangulate and say, wow, 10 people from Wells Fargo have reached out to us for this book. They must be thinking about AI. And we could begin to triangulate and understand what these different companies were doing in artificial intelligence and begin to navigate to those that we should be talking to. Right. And um, the outgrowth of this strategy was we were able to secure our first handful of engagements that really made the company. Um, from this effort, they were all recipients of this ebook that we spent two weeks writing, paid $400 to do some graphic design on that we widely circulated on LinkedIn. And after we did that, the the ball was rolling and the company um, was on its way. Right. That is very impressive. So it appears you mingle with the C-suite on a regular basis. How is selling AI services different from selling AI products to the C-suite of Fortune 500 companies? Okay. So when you're selling a product into the C-suite, um, at least from the the seller's side, there's a very um, formulaic approach to say the number of calls you need to make, the number of conversations you need to have, what you need to say in those conversations, how you need to manage and handle the follow-up, how you're going to close the deal, what kind of discounts you can offer. Right. And with services, there's a very different approach. Uh, first and foremost, when you're selling services, your smile is your brand. So the more they can see you and interact with you and develop a sincere relationship with you, uh, the more likely they are to share with you problems that they're experiencing and, and want to engage you in a discussion around what we might be able to do to solve for those problems. The second difference um, is that when you're selling services, you have to invest in establishing yourself as a trusted advisor. And a trusted advisor simply um, is somebody that they know that they can trust with any type of problem. And that you'll come back to them with an honest, straight answer that's not necessarily in your economic best interest, but that you're truly investing in in establishing a relationship that could potentially last for years. Right. And the third thing is just having a unique and insightful perspective. Um, These individuals at the C-suite are the most time-oppressed executives in the entire world, and they're overwhelmed by data and decisions that they have to make on a regular basis. And so being able to boil your message down to just what they need to hear um, and delivering that in a fashion that allows them to easily absorb it, even if it's an extremely complex concept, um, is critical. And so the difference, though, is that when you're selling a product, you often don't have the luxury of that kind of time and you don't necessarily have management support to invest in those kind of tactics. But if you try to sell uh, services at the C-level to the Fortune 500 the same way you sell product, you're gonna you're gonna run into a lot of barriers um, and have a lot of challenges, and so those are the key differences I would say. I see. So, have you given any thoughts to selling products to these Fortune 500 companies? Yes. So, um, the road from becoming a services company to a product company is paved with the carcasses of very successful services companies that thought they could make that journey. And I say all that because. Everybody wants to migrate and become a product company and see their valuation go from one and a half revenue to you know, 20, 40 times revenue or whatever. Right. For us right now, though, we are content at being a services company. We're platform and product agnostic. We work on our clients' infrastructure and make simple recommendations as to 
what technology they should be employing. But um, we're, we're not terribly bullish at the moment on AI product companies. And there's a whole host of reasons that we can get into why. But, but for now, we are, are solely focused on services. Right. So let's look at how the services you provide have helped your clients grow. Do you get any feedback on how your services have helped them scale their operations? Yes. Um, so one of the, the easiest questions or one of the easiest ways to explain this is when we start working with a client, one of the litmus questions we ask them is how many models do they have actively in production? Right. And we'll go through some back and forth about what production means. But ultimately, a lot of these organizations have very few, if any at all, models in production. And you contrast that with, say, one of the, the digital giants like an Amazon or Google that'll have thousands of models in production and can push a model out into production uh, you know, on, on a minute's notice and manage all those models in the wild and have the infrastructure to support them. And most of these big companies that we work with struggle to get one model out the door, let alone dozens, um, if any at all, to be honest with you. And so the difference, so that's usually the starting point of our engagements is there's usually no models or very few models in production. Uh, most of the model development is happening on individual data scientist computers. These data scientists don't have an understanding as to what it takes to productionalize those models. Uh, and there's no like clean handoff procedures for data scientists to transfer those models to say data engineers. There's no infrastructure to support those models once they are released. Who gets the phone call in the middle of the night on the weekend when the model goes down? Uh, there's no SLAs in place um, on the data assets across the organization so that when one data scientist picks this data set and incorporates it into a, his or her model, there's no communication as to like how that, that data set's going to be managed in the long term and changes to that data set are going to be uh, communicated out. Right. Um, so these are all typical types of issues that companies that want to become AI companies have to overcome. And so that's usually our starting point. By the end of our first or second engagement with these companies, they'll have models in production and they'll have infrastructure to manage those models. And they'll have an understanding as to how like these three distinct um, talent disciplines in data science, data engineering, and AI product management have to work together to develop and manage models. Um, and business leaders will then have a higher level of AI literacy and begin to understand how they can factor those models into their, their decision making. and also. Um, just a basic understanding of what the tech can do and knowing when they can ask questions or when they can bring that tech into new decisions that they have to make. Right. So uh, that's a rough answer to your question, but I hope that gives you some sense as to um, the starting point and where we leave them usually. Right. All right. So if you take a typical company, either a bank or an insurance company, what aspects of their operations do they typically come to you to seek AI services for? So it usually... Uh, we don't have a large enough sample size of clients to tell you that all of our inbound interest comes from a particular department. What we found, the only common denominator across all of our clientele is that they are all AI pioneers. Right. And an AI pioneer can come from a, a lot of different functional areas across a business. Um, we've had them come from innovation. We've had them come from data science. We've had them come from um you know, operations, um, areas of businesses that you would never guess in a million years were the at the forefront of bringing AI into a particular institution. Right. So it's hard to answer that question and tell you, well, it's all come from this area or that area. It, it just hasn't worked out that way. Um, the only common denominator, like I said, is just that they are all the first people in their organizations trying to answer all these critical questions to bring AI into the enterprise. I see. 
Right. So I believe getting clients may be the easiest part of your job. Maintaining them, though, is where a lot of work needs to be done. So what is Prolego's client management philosophy and how are you able to maintain trust and client relationships? Sure. Um, again, it comes back to that trusted advisor mentality. Right. Which is that, you know, to maintain relationships, to develop relationships, you have to sometimes do things that aren't in your economic best interest, but further the relationship and establish trust. And especially in these times as some companies are um, scaling back budgets and, and plans and investments in R&D and innovation, um, just being there for them, uh, even if you don't have an SOW in place, for them to ask questions. Again, this is the kind of behavior that's not tolerated within a product company. But if you want to sell services, you have to be in it for the long haul, which means you have to be a good partner, even if you have a contract or you don't. Um, and so that's what's enabled us to maintain our current book of business and also just maintain relationships with people over time so that they know who to call if and when the occasion should arise. Exactly. All right. So let's look at the adoption rate of artificial intelligence. In your observation, what would you say is the adoption rate of AI among Fortune 500 companies? Oh, goodness. That's a really tough question to answer. Um, so I'm speaking in extreme generalizations here because I, I obviously haven't sampled all companies out there. Right. Um, I would say first and foremost, you have companies um, for whom like AI and and it's just in their DNA. It's it's you know companies that that grew up on this stuff over the last 15, 20 years as it's become more and more usable. And those are the companies like the Netflixes and Amazons and and Microsofts of the world, the companies we all know. Right. Once you leave once you leave that segment of the market, I would say the next um, adopters are mostly in financial services. Again, because of the legacy data assets that they have at their hands and some of the macro changes in the market that are forcing them to innovate faster than they historically have. Um, and that's a big category of businesses. Uh, that's banks, that's insurance, that's uh, investment houses and things like that. And then once you go beyond that, uh, I would say the third area in which we've seen broad adoption is within healthcare. Right. Um, some of the use cases coming out of the healthcare space are spectacular and just revolutionary in terms of the impact it can have on everyday consumers of those services. Um, but beyond that, I find that adoption falls off fairly quickly. Um, and even within those companies in healthcare and financial services, for example, a lot of the core challenges have still not been addressed. Uh, there's not, it's everything you're doing is really new to world stuff. Um, there's not a playbook. There's not, um, a long history of companies before you that have tackled these challenges. Everything you're dealing with is a new to world situation and requires a lot of innovative thinking and stakeholder engagement across the organization. And, and I think a lot of those companies, even the financial services space and, and healthcare are still addressing those, those challenges today. Uh, but once you get outside of those industries, I find that adoption falls off and it's kind of hit or miss as to where organizations are on their AI journey. Right. So with the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, has the adoption rate of AI among Fortune 500 companies changed in any way? Yeah. So I have a, a longer answer to this question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna reference a book. It's my favorite business book of all times. Right. Um, and it's a book by Carlota Perez called Financial Capital and Technological Revolutions. And she published it maybe in 2000, 2001, might have even been 2004. I can't recall exactly. Um, but in this book. She examines the last five technological revolutions that have happened over the last uh, 250 years. And when I say technological revolutions, I'm talking about 
paradigm changing technologies that fundamentally shifted the way we did things on a global scale. Right. And these five revolutions are the industrial revolution, um, the age of steam and railways, the age of steel and electricity and heavy engineering. The fourth is the age of oil and the automobile and mass production. And then the fifth is the age of information uh, and telecommunications. And what's so amazing about her framework is she goes through and identifies two distinct periods that every one of these technologies goes through when it emerges. And if you'll hear me, I'll tell you at a high level what they are quickly. Right. The first is what she calls the installation period. This is when the initial eruption is caused by that technology and venture capital sweeps in and invests huge amounts of money to try to change an existing paradigm. And valuations for companies that are adopting this new technology shoot through the roof and uh, create this big frenzy. And she calls this the Gilded Age. And if you look at things like the automobile during the, the 19, the teens and the 20s, there were hundreds of car companies, hundreds of gas companies, hundreds of infrastructure related companies, roads and parts manufacturers and things like that. And inevitably, what happens is there's a crash. Um, and prices come back down to earth, and all these companies that these VCs had invested huge amounts of money in get washed out. And then when we emerge from the crash um, to make up for the productivity losses and financial losses that were experienced during that crash, that's when these companies begin to adopt these technologies at scale. And unfortunately, very few of them are around at that point in time to fully leverage the infrastructure that was established during the previous stage. And so essentially, you often end up with an oligopoly that will control a marketplace for, you know, 100 years until the next new emerging technology comes out. Right. And so I say all this back to your question. I personally believe that this recessionary event caused by COVID is that moment in which we'll see um, a lot of companies get washed out that had invested heavily in AI. Uh, but we'll, for those that have already made investments and are well on their way to becoming an AI company, I feel like they're going to double down on those investments and be able to take advantage of all the infrastructure and chip development that's happened over the last five, 10 years on the AI front and truly gain a market advantage. So I feel like this is a transformational moment for AI um, as we look at what it means to operate in a, a low touch world. A lot of companies are going to have to turn to you know, the known AI tech to future proof their business against you know, future pandemics. Um, and other future disruptions, but also to account for the fact that we might operate in a, a low-touch economy where we try to minimize human-to-human -human interactions as much as we can in a safe way. Right. Following up on this, let's talk a bit about ethical AI. With businesses heavily impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and the need to build resiliency, I believe this is a time we need to strictly enforce ethical standards in AI development more than ever before given the opportunities that exist in leveraging AI for business recovery and growth. Do you envisage any ethical AI concerns with respect to developing AI technologies? Are developers going to just focus more on how they can use AI to save their businesses whilst ignoring all ethical standards required in the development process? Yeah, so I don't create a subsegment of ethics for AI ethics, and I'm not an ethicist. So um, for me, ethics is ethics. Right. And it's just the moral code by which you operate your business. It doesn't change necessarily because a new technology has been introduced. And so I don't have a, a strong opinion about AI, AI ethics per se. I do have strong 
opinions about just being ethical. Right. Uh, and ethical means just being true to the standards that you feel morally bound to uphold. And, um, you know, being a good human being and a good global citizen and things. You know, I always ask myself if, if this particular behavior action was publicly exposed, how would people view it? And if the answer is negatively, then it's probably not something you should do. Um, and uh, that's kind of my compass. Right. So that's a good one. As a variant of my previous question, let's look at the companies that produce the AI products themselves. If you look at the AI product companies, what do you think are the struggles they are experiencing at the moment? So I'm going to quote here from uh, a recent blog post by Andreessen Horowitz, and I'm, uh, I'm blanking on the gentleman who wrote it. I, I, I want to say it was um, uh, Bornstein, Matt Bornstein, I believe it was. Um, and he wrote it with another co-author, but it just came out like a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And they looked across all their AI product company investments and found that a lot of these, these companies were struggling to come up with comparative uh, financial performance relative to their peers in non-AI driven spaces. And they basically boiled down their, the struggles of these AI companies to three areas. One was uh, lower gross margins. Right. So all these companies experience lower gross margins because of the heavy cloud infrastructure usage and the ongoing human support required to make their models work in a production environment. Um, for a lot of AI product companies, they, they, they undervalue or under model how much involvement there will still be from humans um, in making their models work and delivering their services to their clientele. The second is the scaling challenge. So it's very difficult to write a model, put it in a box, and have it have universal applicability across a huge segment of a marketplace. Right. Um, we find that most of the time, and this is again lends itself to AI services, that the use cases are just too niche um, for standardized approach. That's not to say that there's not use cases out there for which a standardized approach could be helpful. Um, if you're dealing with with things like CRM, for example, where there's you know broad it's a broad use case that spans industry. Um, that's one where you could see uh, an AI product being put out. Um, but but for most use cases, we find that they're just too niche and thorny for there to be a, a general broad-based approach through an AI product uh, to solve for those challenges. And then the third issue that I think they highlighted in this blog um, was uh, it's difficult to establish a defensive position or establish uh, defensive moats around the business um, because of the commoditization of AI models and the challenges with data network effects. Right. So though for those three reasons, it's a real tough market, not to mention it's still extremely early for AI product companies. And this is why we think the market is ripe for, um, for AI services firms. All right. So if you look at the three components of artificial intelligence, which are machine learning, natural language processing, and robotics, which of these do you focus on as an AI services provider? Sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it a little bit differently. Right. So we think about artificial intelligence this way. So if you imagine three concentric circles, the largest of those circles is artificial intelligence. And that was the practice that emerged in the late 40s and early 50s, where we were trying to use computers to replicate the human senses in some fashion. And um, within that, you have a smaller concentric circle called machine learning, which is just a type of computing. It's a type of AI that uses data to build models. And within that, we have deep learning. Right. Now, deep learning is where all the cutting edge 
um, AI is happening today. It's all the innovations of Andrew Ng and people like that. Um, that's that's making the market go wild. Um, it's the advances in deep learning that are really powering a lot of these these um, innovations. Now within within machine learning, we think of it. Uh, we think of four product patterns, right? Um, where machine learning and deep learning are applied. And those are some of the things you alluded to. It's computer visioning, it's natural language processing, it's next in line sequencing, and it's collaboration or recommendation filters. So those are like the four product patterns in which we feel companies have been able to actually make progress and generate revenue. Right. Um, there's a fifth product pattern emerging in reinforcement learning, but but it's still kind of early days for that. But but that's kind of how we think of the market and AI, sir, AI in general. All right. So right now, most of our conversations focus on NLP. If you look at the advances that have happened in NLP over the last year, you can do today with a small team of like three people and a minimal investment what it would have taken a year ago um, to have like a Google-sized budget and resources to do. Uh, the advances on the NLP front are amazing as each one of these large um, in internet companies is competing with each other to come out with a, a newer and better language model. And so many of these companies are just so full of unstructured data um, that that there's just amazing opportunities out there for them to leverage the, the recent advancements with models like BERT and things. So that's where our focus is a lot of times these days. All right. So let's get a broad perspective from you on the future development of AI. Currently, what we are seeing can be classified as narrow AI. General AI, which is the ability of machines to think and act like humans, appears to be very distant in the future. What, in your opinion, is the progress towards that goal? It's the augmentation of mundane tasks or the replacement of mundane tasks and general drudgery with AI that'll create a much greater human condition. Right. Um, so I don't see AI necessarily replacing the work humans do. I see it rather augmenting um, existing jobs that they're trying to get done and enabling them to focus on more higher order tasks um, that are more fulfilling and enjoyable to them. Right. So right now, that's our focus is, is how do we make you know, these jobs a lot easier, simpler, and enjoyable for people by leveraging the cutting edge and in artificial intelligence. And I don't think too far down the road, to be honest with you, because it just is so hard to envision where this could all go. But in the short term, I'm just right. focused on the augmentation piece, um, creating centaurs um, where people uh, are able to do their jobs substantially better by leveraging this tech is where our focus is. Right. So coming to the conclusion of our discussion, you briefly talked about your latest book on AI, which is becoming an AI company in 90 days. Can you share with us some more details on what this book is about? Sure. So this is our second book. And so based upon the success of our first book, we just decided to go through a more formal book writing effort um, and, and put this book together. So this is uh, just like the title says, become an AI company in 90 days is kind of a clickbaity title. But what we wanted to communicate is uh, with a lot of our clients, our goal is to get their first model into production within 90 days. Um, we do that now a lot faster, but at the time that we published this, that seemed for the kind of clients we were working with a Herculean challenge, um, not only to get the model into production, but to have the infrastructure in production to manage that model uh, in real time. And so uh, this book was written specifically for the executive that's trying to wrap their heads around um, this topic and understand where they can begin applying the known tech in their businesses to get models out the door. And so in this book, we talk about, you know, common definitions, AI fundamentals, 
how to identify opportunities for AI across the business, how to build out a winning AI strategy, and lastly, how to launch their first AI product. Right. And so um, we give this book away for free. Uh, if anybody connects with me on LinkedIn or just sends me a note, I'll gladly mail them as many copies to them and their colleagues as they'd like. Uh, but we think this is the best book on AI that you can't buy on Amazon. So uh, that's become an AI company in 90 days, Frank. All right. That is very interesting. So how can businesses reach out to you if they need your services or they need a copy of your book? Sure. So Kevin, my co-founder, and I are always happy to jump on the phone with any executive that's uh, beginning to address um, AI-related questions. So the simplest way is just to send me an email at russ at prolego.io, and we'll gladly schedule a call and talk through any of the challenges that you're experiencing. That's it. All right. Yeah, that's very good and interesting. All right, Russ, thank you very much. It's been nice talking to you, and I appreciate your time and the insights you shared with us. You bet, Frank. It's been a pleasure as well. Thanks so much for reaching out. Subscribe to the Risk Experience podcast and thank you for listening.